many different supermarket options. I don't know where you shop. My wife likes to shop at Waitrose. It's the middle-class uh, option. People are whooping Waitrose, and what they're doing, ladies and gentlemen, is they're just telling you all that they can afford Waitrose, and they love to do it. People who shop at Waitrose, they like to drop it into conversations. <laughs> Sorry I'm late, I was just at Waitrose! Just that everybody knows <laughs> that they can afford Waitrose. Waitrose. A brand that is almost always described as the upmarket supermarket when you read about it. That was Michael McIntyre celebrating its status during a stand-up comedy routine. Waitrose is part of the John Lewis Partnership along with John Lewis Department Stores. This organisation is special in the retail industry. It's owned by its employees, all 80,000 of them. As John Lewis and Waitrose enjoyed great success in recent years, this ownership model was celebrated by politicians and others as an example that all businesses should look to follow. But things don't look quite so rosy anymore. I'm Graeme Ruddick, and this is Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories. The origins of the John Lewis partnership go back to 1864, but it is now suffering from falling sales and posted a pre-tax loss of £234 million for 2022, with staff missing out on a bonus for only the second time in the retailer's history. In this episode, we speak to James Bailey, the boss of Waitrose, about whether being owned by your employees still works, or whether it means that the retailer has been too slow to react to changes in how we shop. Well, that is really a philosophical question, isn't it? Let's have a go. So there's nothing in the partnership model that says it should be slow or overly bureaucratic or anything like that. And if you go back, there are plenty of people in this organisation who go back to the you know the founding texts of John Speed and Lewis. Uh, and he t- he was pretty ruthless retailer. You know, he was... He was all about performance. You know, if the business is succeeding, then it can reward its its employees and its partners, but not the other way around. He was very explicit about the demands of running a brilliant business. And to all intents and purposes, he kind of lived that mantra as well. So there's nothing inherent in the partnership model that says it has to be slower or more risk averse. And there's plenty in the recent history, in the you know 2000 onwards, where the partnership has taken quite big risks, been quite agile and done things that maybe public businesses wouldn't get the chance to. So there's nothing in the model inherently that says that, but there is a risk as well that without that external scrutiny and without a, you know, a particularly active shareholder base or the stock market to compare all the results that need to be exposed all the time, there is a risk that the model can become inward looking mm. and a little bit safe and risk averse. And you just need you just need to make sure that you're always guarded against that. In principle, a model of commerce of capitalism where the people who work in the business are the owners of that business in my opinion it's still philosophically very very important because and actually oddly enough so bernie sanders has just done his uh, uh book about capitalism and democracy and things like that and i've read it but i've been sort of directed to listen to some podcasts to save me the 400 odd pages i might read it anyway but apparently in there he talks about the nature of a business that's owned by its employees as a way to reconnect democracy and capitalism and try and, and sort of undo some of the inequality and the other unintended consequences of normal business structures. So I don't think the idea is dead at all. I think the idea is really as relevant, maybe more relevant now 
than it was to begin with. But you've got to you've got to take that idea and you've got to you've got to bring it to life. You can't just let it. You can't just rest on your laurels. Do you think that point about being inward looking? Do you think that was actually the core issue here? Is that and one of the reasons why you perceived as slow is because you were investing a lot in bricks and mortar, say ten years ago, whereas perhaps other retailers with non-executive boards or shelves was weren't doing that. Perhaps because they were saying, mm, "You seen what's going on over here?" So two questions there really. Is that why you were actually slow? Because of the bricks and mortar investment that you've gradually had to undo? And secondly, how do you get external voices into the organisation? Yeah, I, I mean, again, I, I, the question is, have we been slow? There's, there's certainly things in the partnership which, if you had your go again, you'd say, can we please spend a bit more money on this and a bit less on that? But hindsight is a wonderful thing. And, and again, was that was that particularly a lack of external perspectives or anything else? I, I'm not sure it was particularly. I think it was... In hindsight, most of the changes, so for example, the, the growth in the number of Waitrose shops, sort of um, mid-2000s to mid-2010s, you know, the demand for those shops is there. So it's a very logical thing to go and grab that demand while you can. The The challenge is then, has, has the rest of the business right size to meet that demand? How do you do that? And is that, how are you balancing that against just continuing to reinvent and improve the plumbing and the electrics and everything of the business that supports that customer proposition? So I don't I don't particularly think it was the wrong thing to do, but modern retail is a very, very fast moving industry and you have to keep up behind the scenes as much as in front of the customers. And so we've got we've got work to do to catch up behind the scenes and and that work is the engine room of profitability, which is then a virtuous circle. So you know, it, it happens that we've gone, that we went out to grab lots of space and customers and catchments in that period. And we're, we're at the moment, we're in a period where we need to, you know, rework the processes and the systems behind the scenes. But that's, you know, that's just, that is kind of modern retail. We're just doing it in a bit of a lumpy way. And what about those inward voices? How do you make sure that you're not just, you're not inward looking? Yeah, well, again, there is a risk of, in any organisation that you, you, you start to only hear the same voices and the same opinions and you do need different voices, different experiences in the room. And I think, again, any organisation can do this. I think while it was doing brilliantly for the you know the last couple of decades, the partnership was a brilliant place to develop talent and you got lots of internal talent flowing through. But always organisations need a balance of new ideas. And so, I mean, you know, as, as I arrived, most of my direct reports have changed for different reasons. And most of those have come from outside of the business. So we've got people from Sainsbury's, people from Co-op, people from M&S. And they bring, you know, an amount of that through the business, that uh, renewal, I think is really important because con- because the market's moving so fast, because capabilities are changing so quickly and expectations are changing at the same pace. Without some of that external experience, you can't set a new benchmark. You can't, you don't know what good looks like all the time. So sometimes you have to bring it from outside. Sometimes you can stimulate lots of the people that are here already just in different ways. And again, it's a leadership challenge to make sure everyone's got the right context and the right benchmarks and that they understand what is possible and they have capability to get there. James Bailey was named the boss of Waitrose in April 2020, after more than 13 years at Sainsbury's. The challenges that he faced when he took the job were substantial. The UK was in lockdown because of COVID-19. Sales were under pressure. The John Lewis partnership was going in a new direction under new chairman, Dame Sharon White, and a deal with a card over that Waitrose had to sell products online was ending in a matter of months, and Waitrose was battling to get its own online business fully functioning. 
I'm sure I'll look back at some point, as, as I think most people will who who started a job that year. Starting any job, I think, in 2020 would have been unusual and it would have brought such different, unique challenges that, you know, most of what you'd learned before was irrelevant in a way. And so there, there was the context, but then the partnership had its own context. Uh, Sharon had only arrived a couple of months before. There'd been quite a few restructures. So the way the business was organised had changed quite a lot, even in the last six or 12 months prior to me joining. So there was quite a lot of change fatigue across the businesses. And there was still quite a few questions about how to, how best to organise within the partnership. So there was plenty of context. And as you say, Waitrose had had a, 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 a sort of a storming decade before on the back of building lots of shops, been through a period of retrenchment. To varying degrees, the competition was in different places. I was very, very optimistic about the exit from Ocado and into our own online business. I was pleased to see the foundations we had in our online business. It was it was very, very small, relatively, obviously, but the foundations were really strong. We needed to quickly get up the up the curve in terms of organization and capacity. And and it sounds odd, but of all the times to inherit and try and grow an online business, you know, COVID in some ways was um was the best time because mm. demand one of the one of the challenging parts of online is is capacity management and running a clean P L if you can't generate enough demand, well, all of a sudden demand was insatiable. And so in some ways it was a terrible time to join the business because there was so much change and we were going into such an unusual period. In other ways, our branches responded brilliantly to the demands of the customers. We were trusted because we were felt to be quite safe and clean and high service and we would look after our customers in this exceptionally unusual environment. And we had the opportunity to grow our own online relationship with our customers. So I'm an eternal optimist. There were plenty of challenges, but there were a lot of opportunities. You mentioned Sharon there. What's she like to work for? Because when, when she took over the, the role, it was sort of first time in a long time, I think, ever that it had been an external appointment to that role. And, and secondly, obviously, she'd come from outside the retail industry. So what's it like for you uh, working for her? Uh, well, this probably isn't the time for my one-to-one, is it? So I should be, uh, <laughs> I should be careful. She's, do you know what? She's brilliant. She's exceptionally bright. She's obviously... So I've always thought it was interesting that some of the commentary was, you know, she's not a retailer, she won't know what she's doing. You're you're probably overestimating how complicated you can make retail. In the end, like I said, if you're focused on the customers and work backwards from there, retail is a great business to get into. It's a great business to learn and understand about. So Sharon's super intelligent. She's very focused on the long term, which is, I think, the job of the chairman in the partnership. She's very empathetic, so she's really only prioritizes the outcome for partners in the long term so what what is this business going to look like how do how do we make sure we leave this business in a sustainable shape for all of the future partners the ones we the partners in the business now but the future generation of partners who are going to want to come and experience and enjoy and add to the business so yeah she's very insightful largely leaves me to get on with waitrose which is much appreciated but super focus on that long term which I think as I say is exactly the right space for the chairman and how there's obviously been a fair amount of turnover since before you joined and then since as well including now Pippa Wicks at John Lewis leaving as well does it feel like the business is getting more stable well I mean as I said these three years have been anything but stable for customers or businesses and you know you speak to anyone in the industry and it's that's not a partnership thing that's a that's an industry thing there's a lot of movement a lot of challenge but yes i think we are beginning to feel a lot more stable in i mean specifically in waitrose very stable leadership team i've got super high confidence in their capabilities and the capabilities of 
sort of everyone in the team. So yes, it feels very stable, feels very aligned. And the partnership is overall is always evolving. So I wouldn't want us to feel too stable because I think that means we'd probably be missing a trick. But we've got a really clear view of what the future needs to look like and how to get there. It's about processing it and how how would you get the right people in the right place at the right time. James Bailey is battling some profound short-term and long-term challenges as boss of Waitrose. In the short term, there is surging inflation, low consumer confidence and declining market share for Waitrose amid a price war between supermarkets. In the long term, he also has to think about protecting the Waitrose brand and issues around sustainability, food security and actually being able to source the food we eat. There's also changing shopping habits as online shopping continues to grow. Sometimes the short-term and long-term collide, such as when Waitrose was criticised by some customers at the end of 2022 for shortages on its shelves as it tried to introduce a new IT system to manage its stock. Well, I mean, up to a point, it might sound a little bit naive, We've part of the point of being a partnership is that you've got that long-term cover so as I said, market share is an indicator of lots of different things. And to some extent, you know, how popular is your proposition at the moment relative to everyone else's? There are loads of things that impact that one way or the other. And not least in the medium long term, and we've already mentioned it, is you know, how much you're investing in shops, how many new sites you're opening because that's access to new customers and all sorts of other things besides. So one of the soft benefits of being a private business and certainly a partnership is if there is a choice to be made between a sustainable long-term profitable return for partners and proposition for customers and a grab on short-term market share you can always choose the former and gradually you've got to believe that over time the collection of those decisions puts you in a much stronger position your foundations are much stronger on your positioning in the market i thought it was really interesting what you said recently that and it's a message that i've, I've not heard which was really enforced that strongly to recently that your base products are the same level, if not better, than the top products being offered by everyone else. Is that that's your position in the market? You you're competitive on price and significantly better than everybody else. Uh, well, yes. If you want to summarise it that way, that would be great. Um, I, it, you know, it, it's as much as anything. It's more about just being objectively careful about those things because I'm not here to do down everyone else's proposition or anything like that. But objectively speaking. Because Waitrose, and this isn't me, this is a long-standing thing, because Waitrose has set very high standards and universal standards, product sourcing, animal welfare, product quality, when we say something, we have to apply it to everything and we'll consistently apply it to everything. So, I mean, the example I've given a few times is our essentials sausages, the fact that they're outdoor bred, the fact that they're high welfare and British, and we've had that relationship with those pig farmers for 40 plus years, and it's the... The, and the, the only equivalent specification out in the market from big grocers, the example I gave was Sainsbury's, they're, it, you know, only their taste the difference tier of sausages carries that mm. same credentials. That's fine. That's differentiating across the tiers. It's just the fact that because we've set such high benchmarks for our sourcing, that our benchmark starts where someone else's finishes. Long term, are you expecting ethical, sustainable food to become more and more important is that a bet waitrose is playing that as, as price is obviously always going to play a role yep. in customers but that those issues are going to become more and more important yeah well i mean that's a that's a whopper of a question because i think it comes down to what the food system the question we're asking the food system and again if you if you were going to get philosophical you could say that 
the food system in the UK, the last big question it was asked was post Second World War, how to provide plentiful, affordable, quality, fresh food. And there's, you know, there's almost no question that it answered that question incredibly well. The percentage of disposable income that people in the UK have spent on food has gone down and down and down for the last, consistently, I think, for the last four or five decades. So ask that question, the food system delivered brilliantly. Now, there's lots of questions, open questions about whether that's been the right question for the last couple of decades and whether spending that little on food is a good or a bad thing. So for health outcomes, for the environment, for a sustainable agricultural sector in the UK. But that's the point. So over more recent decades, and certainly in the last decade, people have been questioning the question. And is that at all costs, is that the right outcome now for the food system? And I think that that is slowly changing. I think you see developments like regenerative agriculture, like the organic movement, you know, a long time before that, people beginning to ask questions of saying, is cheap, affordable, available all the time food the right answer? Or actually, do we need to evolve? And I think for lots of big reasons, the answer is yes, we need to ask a different question. And it could be, if that becomes the dominant question in the market, or at least it equalizes the first question, then some of that trend, some of those demands definitely are much more related to Waitrose DNA than they might be currently. And if it does, that's an accident. It's not how we've designed the business because the business has been doing the same thing for 50 plus years. But you know, a generation of consumers that is much more focused on the sustainability of the food than the affordability up front, the quality and the the livelihoods of UK agriculture and the sector and the people it employs. Food security become a, a more of a thing in the last three years than it may have done before. So all of those things may combine, along with that macro trend of what you, you know, much more detailed understanding of what you put in your body and how it impacts your health. And those things are cumulatively potentially asking a different question of the food system. You touched on food security there. Does it become more an issue to people when they the war in Ukraine, but then obviously recently with, with salad products in yeah. the industry right now, does that really enforce in people's mind that there's serious questions here about how and where we're getting our food? Uh, it probably does to a point. And it's an interesting example because if you're asking the food security question, then then should you or would you grow and buy salads from Spain and Morocco? Well, Spain and Morocco are pretty much near neighbours. It's unlikely they'll be affected by, you know, global politics or security mm. issues in that way. But they can be. They can obviously be impacted by climate change potentially. I'm not saying the current events were, but should the climate shift and seasons move backwards and forwards, or you know, certain regions that have previously grown some products not being able to anymore, that definitely affects food security. And so does the shifting demand patterns as different populations around the, the world grow in different in different ways so there are massive macro dynamics in the food system and it and it pretty quickly reflects those and you see those on the shelves in the uk does it mean you should onshore all of your salad and tomatoes and bananas (laughs) well there's a couple of challenges with that and that's that and the the first one is that the the food industry's done such a brilliant job of answering that first question about great food everywhere all the time the absence of some salad products in the middle of a cold february for a couple of weeks makes it headline news in the bbc when really do consumers need to go back on a journey that says these aren't seasonal products in the UK. So, you know, just for a few weeks, we probably have to live with that. But it, that that seasonality question would have to be probably part of a bigger question of 
That's a fascinating point. Food system. I was going to ask you about that next. I mean, have we got that story the wrong way around? Is, that, is it not really about asking why it's products, why the shelves don't do, but asking why we expect them to be full? Because supermarkets, UK ones, lots of ones, but UK ones certainly are amazing at the job they were asked to do. People do expect bananas all year round. They do expect tomatoes in December. They do, you know, they expect all these things. Um, and it's been delivered so consistently. It's not a surprise that people react when when you can't get those products. It's a little bit emotive and it's not, it's like most things in the food system, it's never as obvious as it looks. But that question of seasonality and is it healthier? Is it more sustainable? Might, might improve food security if people ate more seasonally? Yes, yes and yes. The question is, you know, we're, we're not a, supermarkets aren't libraries or schools. They're not here to teach people what to do. They're here to sell food. So that journey for people back into maybe a, maybe a more seasonal approach to their food, in my opinion, will be quite a slow one. James Bailey started his career as a finance management trainee with the NHS. He went on to work for Sainsbury's for more than 13 years, between 2006 and 2019. There, he worked under chief executives Justin King and Mike Coop. I've worked with great business people, great leaders, not necessarily the people always at the top of the business, although those have also been usually uh, really interesting and, and people you can always learn something from if you're, if you're paying attention. But as much as anything, I usually learn from the people all around me. And I mean, and I mean next to me, so peers, people I work for and people who work for me sometimes. And I, I, you know, in lots of scenarios in the last couple of decades, definitely in retail, I've learned more from the people who work for me than the people I work for because they tend to be the most authentic in telling you what's working and what's not working. But they're also, sometimes it's, it's just timing, but sometimes it's capability and potential. I've, I've worked with some exceptional people in the last 20 years. And I, I just think if you keep your eyes and ears open about how someone is getting something done, how they're explaining, how, they're, how they are framing a question and how they are coming at the answers to that question. Most of everything I've ever learned has been from the people around me and more often than not from the people who work for me, not the people I work for. When you look back over your career, who, who is there, are there any particular people you would pick out as being people you've particularly learned from? Um, I quite often say Mike Coop, who was sort of my boss at Sainsbury's for a while. Mike mentored me a little bit. And, you know, he's not the most demonstrative leader, particularly, but he's very cerebral. And some of the feedback I used to get was that I, maybe I wasn't demonstrative enough. So I was a little bit too calm, regardless of the situation. And Mike wasn't that dissimilar. So it helped to see someone doing as well as he was and with so much experience and respect doing it in that way. He was all about the quality of the thinking. So in his teams, he didn't he didn't need people to be banging drums or shouting out loud or anything like that. It was all about how good was the thinking? How well articulated was it? Had it been tested properly? So it was all about the quality of the work, not about the noise that accompanied it. Quality of decision making, basically. Yep. Yeah. And, it, and you know, and without turning this into the mic podcast, <laughs> uh, he also wasn't afraid to make difficult decisions, you know. Yeah. So the Asda Sainsbury stuff was a serious, serious move. You know, he's pretty instrumental in the Argos changes. And if you look back on the history of the business, those were enormous structural strategic decisions um, so he obviously wasn't either afraid to make the big decisions so a balance of those two but I mean you know through my career at Sainsbury's I worked with some amazing people for, and they were they all did the job slightly differently the, I mean one of the things I might 
sort of differentiate on is what I would consider the very best had a sense of curiosity about them. So they were always asking questions. It doesn't matter if the business was performing exceptionally or performing terribly. It was always curiosity about what next, what what could we do differently? How could we improve something? Mm. And I'm kind of drawn to that kind of person. Do you learn at all from outside of the grocery industry? Because you started your career in the NHS. Yep. And is it three years you did that for? Yep. First of all, why did you do that? And then why did you not carry on? How come you ended up working for, for Sainsbury's? Uh, I'd love this to be a really inspirational, well-planned and thought-out <laughs> answer. But, bro- I mean, broadly, I finished university, had a whale of a time, you know, made the best friends, etc., as you're supposed to, I hope, at university, and didn't have a plan. So I was back home in Eastbourne and started applying. I've always liked business and maths and stuff like that. So finance was a relatively obvious mm. thing to have a go at. I applied for different schemes, uh, you know, training management schemes, and got offered a couple of them, two or three of them. But the NHS one was, it just sounded much more interesting. So the other ones felt a bit like I'd be counting staples and paper clips in cupboards. And the NHS one was broadly about come and learn finance, but at the same time, spend a week on an ambulance, spend a week with the doctors and the nurses and the cleaner. Do, do understand the business. So it just sounded much more interesting. You did that for three years and then yep. decided to leave. Yeah, I got, I mean, I've had a couple of moments of brilliant career advice. And one of them, I think, it's always easy in retrospect. I was working, as, a, as you say, at the NHS. And I think my boss, my maybe my boss's boss, uh, who is the chief of a health authority, I don't even know what they're called these days, but it was a health authority in those days, said, you should go and try the private sector. Because if you go and you try it and you prefer the public sector, yeah. you can always come back because you're just bringing more experience back in. But the longer you stay in the public sector, the less likely you're going to be able to make that jump and you'll never know. And I kind of took him almost immediately his word and, and left about three months later, which I don't think is what he meant. But but yeah, like I say, I love that experience. Brilliant, committed people. But I did think it was a good idea to go and try something different as well. One of the things I want to ask you is about flexible working, because my understanding is from you said before at Sainsbury's, you tried to introduce it. And let's just say slightly ahead of your time, it nearly results in you getting fired. (laughs) Well, I mean, it might have been more about my own uh, gung-ho naivety and a lack of understanding of how big businesses work than it was about particularly being like the Joan of Arc of flexible working or something. But I, I mean, I basically, I had just been promoted and it was my first big meeting speech, really. There's an auditorium in the Sainsbury's building, a couple of hundred people. And I, I decided that I would say exactly how I thought the best work was done. And I, that part of that was being flexible, focusing on happiness as a measure for the teams and delegating as much authority and autonomy to everyone. Now, most of that I still exact, well, all of that I still stick 100% by. Did I have permission to say all of those <laughs> things? Maybe not. Uh, did I get in trouble and nearly get fired? Yes, maybe, maybe I did. But uh, again, I also got great advice through that, which is... I learned that would I have said something differently? No, I don't think I would. Would I have would I have waited a little bit and done it differently? Maybe. But those are the things I definitely believe in. So if you're gonna get fired for something, at least get fired for something you genuinely believe. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our newsletter off to lunch. There you will find bonus content as well as business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.